Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning, this is Peter Lewis. Welcome to Money Talk for the final day of this week, Friday the 25th of August. There are several places where you can find this show. Look for Peter Lewis's Money Talk on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify, where we're one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong and Singapore. You can go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll also find my daily newsletter and on Facebook, I'm Peter Lewis Money Talk and on Twitter at Money Talk R3. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the five BRIC nations have invited Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates to join their emerging market group. They will join the existing five BRIC nations of Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa from the 1st of January 2024. And it will be the first expansion of the group since South Africa joined in 2010. China has suspended imports of all aquatic products from Japan less than an hour after Tokyo began pumping out treated water from the Fukushima nuclear plant into the Pacific Ocean 12 years after the meltdown at the site. Hong Kong announced it will impose an indefinite ban on Japanese seafood imports from 10 prefectures and publish the results of daily tests on other food from the country starting today. Hong Kong exports have fallen for the 15th straight month. Exports from Hong Kong shrank 9.1% year-on-year, worse than market expectations of an 8.8% drop, and following an 11.4% fall in the previous month. Shipments to mainland China plunged 15.2%, while they also dropped by double-digit percentages to South Korea, Japan, Malaysia and the Philippines. Exports to the US and the EU also shrank. Imports were down 7.9% compared with economists' expectations of a 5.9% drop. On today's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Simon Kavanagh, partner at BDA Partners. And with a view from Australia, it's Toby Lawson, CEO at Staten Partners. US stocks gave up their early gains and Treasury yields rose as investors shifted their focus to the Jackson Hole meeting and Fed Chair Jerome Powell's speech due later today. Shares had initially been boosted by stronger than expected results from chipmaker NVIDIA. The S&P 500 gave up a gain of half a percent in early trading to close 1.4% lower at 4,376. It was the biggest one-day loss since August the 2nd. The Dow closed 374 points lower, or 1.1%, at 34,099. It was the worst day for the Dow since March. The tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite shed 1.9% to 13,464. The information technology sector was the S&P 500's biggest loser, ending Thursday down 2.2%, weighed by declines in other semiconductor stocks, including advanced micro devices and Intel. Shares of NVIDIA surged almost 7% to a new record high in early trading before giving up all of the gains to close just 0.1% higher. NVIDIA is the best performing S&P 500 stock of 2023, up more than 200% as investors cheer the company's AI-related prospects. US Treasury yields climbed on Thursday as investors waited for signals on monetary policy from central bankers speaking at the Jackson Hole meeting. The yield on the benchmark 10-year Treasury note was five basis points higher at 4.24% after hitting a 16-year high of 4.35% earlier this week. The US dollar index rose above 104 on Thursday, hitting its highest level in 11 weeks as investors awaited Jerome Powell's address at Jackson Hole later today. Hong Kong shares rose for the third straight session with the Hang Seng index pulling further away from the nine-month low it's hit on Monday. The city's benchmark index rose 366 points or 2.1% to 18,212. The tech index surged 3.7%. Mainland Chinese markets were also up, with the Shanghai Composite gaining 0.1% to 3,082. Technology stocks led the charge on the mainland. 
And Chinese delivery giant Metran posted its fastest sales growth in two years as consumer spending on cheap dining and travel rebounded while consumers held back on big ticket items like cars and real estate. Metran's revenue rose by 33% to 68 billion renminbi, that's 9.3 billion US dollars in the three months to June. Looks like, though, the Hang Seng Index is going to sink this morning at the open. Futures markets pointing to a decline of about 216 points. That's 1.2%. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. For the final time this week, let's welcome our guests. We have with us our regular Friday commentator, Francis, Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities. Morning, Francis. Hi, good morning. And also joining us, Simon Kavanagh, who is partner at BDA Partners. Morning, Simon. Morning, Peter. Um, let's start with NVIDIA and talk a bit about yeah. artificial intelligence, because that's been the big theme of this week, hasn't it? Shares in NVIDIA hit a record high yesterday after the California chipmaker's revenue more than doubled in the last quarter. It's the world's only $1 trillion semiconductor a manufacturing company. It reported an 88% jump in revenue to $13.5 billion. That well-topped estimates, driven by a surge for AI processors. NVIDIA's performance uh, was driven by its data center business, which includes the A100 and H100 AI chips that are needed to build and run AI applications like ChatGBT. And NVIDIA said it expected third quarter revenues even higher of about 16 point billion, much higher than the expected uh, 12.6 billion by analysts. Also authorised $25 billion in share buybacks. Shares of NVIDIA, they surged almost 7% to a new record high, but then gave up all those gains, closed 0.1% higher. But still, it's up more than 200% um, this year. Um, Francis, this was a big deal, wasn't it? A lot of people waiting to see NVIDIA's results because it's sort of the bellwether of the artificial intelligence sector, isn't it? And how well that's going to do. Yeah, the uh, company exceeded all expectations and even the widest and most bullish uh, forecast, I think... uh, uh, I think analysts were caught off guard by the the strong demand for the, for the chips, the H100 and the A100, even though they're selling at forty thousand US dollars a piece, and wow. Nvidia just can't produce enough of them. I think uh, the the, the uh, because AI is just starting to uh, progress uh, in, in the world, and uh, and everybody try to outdo the other their rivals in AI. So I think uh, the demand for their chips will continue to be strong. This is the biggest sort of theme we've seen, really, haven't it, in yep. the tech sector for a long, long time. I mean, mm-hmm. it's pretty transformative, as, as I suppose NVIDIA's sales are, are, are really suggesting, because so many companies now are looking at AI and looking at ways to use it in their business, so they're going to need these chips. Yeah, I, th- I think this is the start of a major boom in AI. Unless uh, the analysts were wrong or everybody got it wrong, I think uh, this boom uh, will continue for a few years, at least for two more years. So you can uh, look forward for NVIDIA to continue to outpace the market. And what I think will also happen, what will be very interesting is, I mean, yes, everyone's using these chips for AI, but then what are those actual... Uh, products and services that they're going to be creating. What's the AI going to be used for? How is that going to be transforming and who are going to be the winners in that area and which sort of countries as well? Um, so I think NVIDIA's sales are really just the start of what's going to be a longer term transformative trend. Is, is every company really now having to start thinking about how they can use AI in their business and what sort of difference it's, it's going to make? Yeah, I think from uh, from uh, stockbrokers to <laughs> uh, to these uh, uh, platform shares like uh, like like Google and uh, e- even the Apple and like uh, uh, Alibaba and Tencent, they they have to have something <laughs> uh, to show that they are in the business. Otherwise, they 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 will lose out. 
Mm. But is this um, really just a, a one-off for NVIDIA? Because it doesn't look like other chip manufacturers are benefiting in the same way, does it? Is that because they don't make the right types of chips that are needed, like Intel on Advanced Micro? They don't seem to be benefiting like NVIDIA is. Well, uh, well actually, AMD has a, a chip that can piece directly with A100. But somehow, I think, uh, because they, they, they are late en- entrant, uh, 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 people don't seem to uh, want to use their AMD chip yet. Mm. <laughs> but uh, this, this theme is going to continue, presumably, in the markets for a while yet, even though, I mean, I mean NVIDIA was looking mm. um, you know, quite expensive, up over 200%, but it's been mm. beat. It's, it's almost halved its PE overnight as a, as a result <laughs> of, it, of its earnings. But is this theme going to continue? Yeah, I think, I mean, the other chip companies will catch up. NVIDIA's always had the advantage in terms of GPUs for years. Um, Others will catch up. Um, And I think what would be interesting is, is this going to, for economies, provide a kind of step change in productivity? Mm -hmm. So it frees up a portion of the workforce because they essentially get automated and AI can take over, and then it frees up that part of the labor force for other roles and essentially economies are able to do more with um, the same population. I'm trying to compare it, what, what might be comparable to this, maybe when the internet first started, which then also transformed, didn't it, how companies work and perform. I mean, are we looking at something sort of generational like, like that? Yes, I think so. Um, mm. I mean, it'll take years to to sort of work its way through the system and for us to see the benefits and the uses. But, yeah, I mean, it really can um, make life a lot easier um, and sort of automate a lot of things that are fairly labor-intensive at the moment. Mm-hmm. Some companies are already using it, like in the active brokers. Uh, if you call them, they, they, the telephone will be answered by an answering machine, and then you want answers. Uh, is some is some some other recording you get you you never can get in touch with a person mm. and 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 if what you ask is not in the glossary of of things then you you will never get the right answer i i've tried <laughs> one of these automated chat things on on yeah. my web hosting uh company that looks after my uh, my websites and uh-huh. it's a very frustrating process because yeah. the, the young lady it always seems to be a lady on these on these <laughs> things didn't really understand my answer and assumed it was something else so yeah. but I, I can see but how, how do we play this out here in asia it's obvious in the u.s you look at stocks like nvidia and what, mm. what's the play out here if you want to benefit from AI? Well, I think I think the uh, Baidu is uh, probably the leader right now because they already have a product in the market. Mm. But uh, still, they, they have not been able to uh, make money or actually give a, uh, a, a business plan for for the AI product, I think, mm. uh, no, it's, it's really too new in the market. I think people are still trying to figure out uh, uh, how the market will play out. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of Chinese stocks that uh, jumped um, kind of on the back of NVIDIA's announcement. But I think it'll be interesting in terms of the geopolitics that comes into play, because the CFO of in- NVIDIA actually came out and she was very blunt. Um, and she said that essentially if these restrictions that the U.S. is planning on putting in place from technology transfers and sales go ahead, um, and sort of, I quote, it will result in a permanent loss of an opportunity for the U.S. industry to compete and lead in one of the world's largest markets. Um, mm. And I mean, that's that's pretty blunt. So you've got a big poster child of NVIDIA, which will be um, a darling in the U.S., and they're saying we want access to the China market. Mm-hmm. NVIDIA has to produce a special chip, doesn't it, for, for China yeah. that's not as advanced as the ones it sells elsewhere because of the US restrictions on high technology products going to China. I mean, presumably that obviously affects NVIDIA, but how, how much does it affect China? I mean, where is China in the AI race? They're in in terms of a lot of these um, advanced technologies, they're catching up. But I mean, they'll be putting in an awful lot of resources and time and money. Um, and I've no doubt that they'll they'll get there. But it'll be a few years away. And at that point, NVIDIA will have a new next generation of 
chips. Um, so they'll they'll be playing catch up for some time. But in terms of coming up with domestic products for sort of China market to improve productivity and provide AI related services in China, they may not be quite as good as Nvidia's ones, but they'll be a lot better than we have at the moment. Francis, how, how damaging is this for, for China, the, this well, technology? Well, thing? if you don't have, <coughs> have the most advanced chips, I think, I think what they're doing is they, they are doubling or quadrupling the chips. They, they're putting several of them together, trying to uh, uh, simulate the effect of uh, H100 or something like that. But of course, it. Uh, but, but the key thing in AI is really... Uh, not the chip itself is how you program it. I mm. think I think I think that is one area that China is strong at because uh, uh, the population of China uh, China is uh, huge, one point mm. four billion people. Uh, you certainly will find enough programmers to write good programs for AI. Really. What else should you look at if you want to invest in AI? Obviously, there is the chip makers, but there's other things as well, aren't there? There's presumably people that make the serve companies that make the servers, the cloud hosting um, sort of firms. Are, are there other ways of playing AI as well as just the chip makers? Well, the uh, the, the bottleneck right, right now is the AI chip, but but if you talk about uh, servers and and uh, cloud services, there. The market is really full of them, like Alibaba, Tencent, everybody, and and even in the U.S. there are many, many of them. I, I, uh, there is a glut of services, but, but there, there is very limited supply of good uh, AI chips like H one hundred. So mm. I think uh, Nvidia is uh, really uh, basking in the glory right now. Yeah. <laughs> And I would, I mean, I'd add to that the software companies, as Francis mentioned, um, that are writing these programs. Um, and then the data centers where all these computers mm -hmm. are operating, that sort of infrastructure behind the whole cloud will, I mean, it's obviously been growing exponentially for the last decade, but it'll continue to do so. Okay, let's uh, turn our attention to BRICS. The five BRIC nations have invited Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates to join their emerging market group. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa said yesterday they're going to join the existing five BRIC nations, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa from January the 1st. That's going to be the first expansion of the group uh, since, South since South Africa joined in 2010. And a combined 23 countries now have formally applied uh, for BRICS membership, including those six that have just been invited. Um, how important is BRICS becoming? There's a lot of focus this year, wasn't there, on the, on the BRICS uh, summit. And now we have these six uh, new members. Um, what does this mean for, for the BRICS nations? I, I think what it means is really the decline of uh, global influence for the Western countries. Uh, ever since, actually, ever since the sec uh, First World War, uh, the world order has been really dictated by the Western country, the U.S. and Europe. And even after the Second World War with, uh, with the uh, uh, United Nations, and then you have World Bank, IMF, they're all uh, uh, headed by European or Americans. Mm. Uh, uh, it's understanding the American will head the IMF, then the European will head the World Bank. So, uh, and then and then the OECD the same way, and then G7 is basically also dominated by America and the European allies. So, uh, uh, many countries uh, don't don't want the Americans and the Europeans to to boss them around basically. So, so is this designed to be an anti-West coalition? Is that what it's? Uh, yeah, that's definitely, what it's supposed definitely. To be? You you see what happened in Niger, even the colonial master uh, uh, France got kicked out. People just hated the, the French for dominating Niger for so long, for mm. more than a century. Yeah, I think they've. The problem with BRICS is everyone's got slightly different um, goals, I think. I mean, China wants, obviously, a counterweight to U.S. dominance. Um, and 
is hoping to have a large organization which it can essentially be in charge of. Um, India really, I mean, it's sort of kind of friends with everybody, but what they're really after is a seat on the UN Security Council. Um, that's been their sort of bugbear for decades. Um, Brazil is, I mean, it was interesting, uh, President Lula de Silva, I mean, he actually said, we do not want to be a counterpoint to the G7, G20, or the US, we just want to organize ourselves. Mm. And so I think South Africa and Brazil are far more focused on the global South, as it sort of is now being referred to, and improving trade. Um, and there's been a lot of talk with sort of the new development bank, which is the kind of multilateral bank within BRICS in terms of doing more lending, not in US dollars, um, but in Brazilian real and in, um, in RAND. And it's then that sort of de-dollarization is something that sort of Russia and China will jump onto um, because they'd love that. I mean, China would obviously like the RMB to be a sort of de facto kind of global currency um, but I mean that's obviously very hard until it becomes uh, fully, uh, fully convertible but they've all got kind of slightly conflicting um, goals and I mean when it expands from its five now to 11 and then maybe more then it's really going to become a mirror of the G20 just without the kind of G7. Um, well, what is interesting is it's uh, it dominates now the oil-producing nations, doesn't it, with the with the inclusion of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. So is that w one of the things maybe it's going to have more clout in in terms of global oil supplies because you've got those two big nations there uh, that, that really dominate, uh, and, and Russia, of course, that dominate oil production? Yeah, I actually, I, <laughs> just before this, I worked it out. Um, six of the top ten oil-producing nations are now within the BRICS. Mm. Um, and... I mean, it, the thought in the back of my mind is would, because I mean, dollar is, uh, the dollar is used for all oil transactions globally. Um, and I think that's a sort of a source of a pain point um, for some of these countries. And if the sort of six that are within BRICS start doing some tr oil trades between themselves in something other than US dollars, I mean, they'll have to argue over which currency. Um, but I, that would, might be something that we see. Mm. If if you look at the the countries that are in it now, uh, or including the the ones that are about to be added, there's six democracies, two authoritarian states, two autocratic monarchies, and a theocracy. <laughs> so I'm wondering how on earth you get all of these uh, different countries to agree on anything at all. Uh, I think it's difficult. I think uh, uh, I think in the 1960s they have a long al aligned countries organization. And that resulted in a hung uh, meeting before I communicate. And then the, the organization ba basically uh, 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 dissolved itself. I think uh, it will be difficult for them to reach any kind of cons consensus. Because when you look at G7, it's basically the Western democracy plus uh, Japan. Mm. And even OECD is uh, the Western democracy plus Japan and South Korea. Mm. And uh, so, 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 so uh, uh, critics can say this is an organization for dictatorship. <laughs> so where do, the key thing is, where does the money come from? What these countries want is money, isn't it, at the end of the day? Or they want debt reduction, but the same thing, really. You look at countries like Argentina, which is, in effect, bankrupt. Now, the yeah. Western nations have got institutions like the IMF and the World Bank that can go and provide funding to countries that, that work with them. Where's the money going to come from for, for this block and for their particular projects and, and interests? Well, unless China and Saudi Arabia are willing to empty uh, up the money, I don't know who can. <laughs> yes. I mean, and the track record so far isn't great. I mean, because they've had this new development banks for um, 14 years now, I think. And it's only loaned out $33 billion versus, mm. I mean, the World Bank's got outstanding loans 10 times that amount. So, um, and I mean, China's also got its Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank um, so it's it's backing these multilateral banks, but the fund flow through those banks has been pretty low. It's tended to just do its bilateral Belt and Road um, initiatives. Mm -hmm. 
Because it seems to me that unless there's real money on the table that's going to make real differences to, to some of these countries, all it's going to be is a, a, a nice talking shop. But there's not going to be any action, is there? There's not going to be much that they're actually going to do together. The best thing they could do is um, trade um, and relaxing tariffs, trade restrictions, mm. customs, import, exports, all those sort of things. That's the that's really the way to kind of get started, in my view, and that will have an immediate economic impact on all the participants. And then um, sort of the political stuff and, quite frankly, finding the money for the loans and things can follow later. But just relaxing um, regulatory red tape, I think, mm. is something that they can kind of all agree on. Mm. I mean, this group now, with the new members, according to Lula da Silva, the president of Brazil, it's 37% of the world's GDP, 46% of the world's population. And that's before any more members have been added. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. a, it's a big grouping in terms of its representation, isn't it? Yeah, uh, in terms of GDP, it already exceeded the G7. Hmm. But, but the problem is the, is the uh, industrial nations that really holding the uh, uh, technology lead uh, like uh, internet and uh, semiconductor machinery, everything else. Uh, this big uh, 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 group of companies, mainly uh, resource-producing countries or uh, mid-level industrialized countries like China. Mm. So you don't have a single really advanced industrialized country in there. So uh, you don't have the technology lead, and uh, uh, you 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 cannot build for the future. I think the future is still in the hand of the advanced industrialized countries. Mm. I mean, the problem is, I suppose, although it's 37% of the world's GDP, when you look at the per capita income of these countries, mm-hmm. way way lower than yeah. Europe and the US and Japan. Mm. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> they still have some, some way to catch up, I think. What, what does it mean for the G20? Does the G20 become any less relevant? I mean, President Biden's going to go to the G20 summit in uh, New Delhi um, mm. next month. Maybe he might meet President Xi Jinping there. We don't know um, yet. But it is, um, where does this leave the, the G20? The G20 will continue as it is. And I mean, I think it's been... I mean, as these multilateral organizations go, it's it's fairly effective in terms of once or twice a year, you get all the heads of these large countries together and they get to sort of talk to each other. And um, I think that is useful just in terms of overall building relationships and the side meetings that they have. Um, but I mean, G20 is really just a, not quite a it's a, a bit photo op- opportunity yeah, for, for, yeah. for the heads of state like because uh, that's another big talking shop really isn't yeah. it it's yeah. rare that the g20 ever comes up with anything substantial in its communique and, uh, and at the moment it doesn't even seem to be able to agree a communique yeah. because of russia yeah, yeah. i mean some global coordination on something like climate change would be mm-hmm. where the g20 could really step up um, mm. but yeah, there's all sort of a myriad of differing opinions and um, infighting. So I think it's unlikely. Now, the US is calling for China to be more transparent about the state of its economy. This comes after the National Bureau of Statistics mm-hmm. suspended publication of its youth unemployment figures, which it's been publishing since 2018. The US National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, said these are not, in our view, responsible steps for global confidence, predictability, and the capacity of the rest of the world to make sound economic decisions. It's important for China to maintain a level of transparency in the publication of its data. Now, US Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is going to go to Beijing next week and this is going to be one of the issues uh, that she's going to raise in Beijing but do you think there's going to be much traction uh, and much cooperation from China on this? I doubt it because uh, America's policy is really to keep China uh, uh, three generations behind in the technology race. (laughs) If I make uh, uh, three nano chips, then you you can only make 15 nano uh, chips, something like Mm. that. So I think uh, 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 that really hurt the uh, technology uh, uh, industry in in China. But China only has uh, herself to blame 
in terms of uh, uh, lower end products. Like uh, last uh, this week, I spoke to a uh, garment jobber like uh, uh, Li and Fung. They said uh, uh, purchases from 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 garments from China fell by at least twenty five percent over the last year, mainly because uh, the the question of Xinjiang cotton. Mm-hmm. Because uh, you cannot, because Xinjiang uh, uh, produces fifty percent of China's cotton. Mm-hmm. So if you buy a garment from, from made in China, you cannot be sure that it does not contain Xinjiang cotton. Mm-hmm. So what, what what people do now is that they buy from uh, South uh, uh, Vietnam or Cambodia or other countries, but. But uh, I I don't know uh, if they can really get away from Xinjiang cotton because mm. all the all the cloth are woven in China. <laughs> it's hard to see, isn't it? What's going to come out of these meetings uh, next week, Simon? I mean, there's going to be a a lot of talking past each other, but probably not much resolution to the to the key issues that are sort of damaging trade between the U.S. and China. Yeah, I think I mean the transparency point is. I mean, I fully. I'm fully in favor of transparency, and I think China should be far more transparent. And it would help um, the other global economies in terms of assessing their trade and looking at a global economic output. Because, I mean, it's in no one's interest for China to sort of fall into recession or be economically unstable um, because everything's so interconnected. So additional transparency on data, um, yes, fully in favor of it, and I think they should do it. Will they? No, Mm. because... um, in China, everything has to be so tightly managed um, and messaged and bad news is to be avoided at all costs. And so they, they keep it all very much to themselves. And it does make um, analysts and people making economic decisions outside of China um, makes their life harder. Mm. But it, it, it is that is part of the reason why the economy is not doing so well at the moment because of the lack of transparency, because of this top-down control that's sort of got even worse yeah. in recent years on all aspects of the, the economy. It's just completely frightened foreign investors off, isn't it? They've been dumping Chinese equities in, in, in the billions. <laughs> yeah, the, all, all, all the damages are really self-inflicted. I think the the severe... Uh, lockdown policy really hurt uh, uh, foreign, uh, foreign confidence in, in doing business in China. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nobody wanted a repeat of the lockdown. Yeah, and I mean you can't imagine China eventually. Well, timing to be discussed, but at the point it becomes the largest economy in the world, the thought of it being the world's largest economy with a complete lack of economic transparency on data um, with capital controls on the currency. I mean, they just don't match up. I mean, the, G- the things that the G7 have in common are full transparency, pretty much, and sort of free um, movement of capital. Mm-hmm. And China needs to get to that point in order to be in that sort of that bracket. Okay. Let me ask you finally a little bit about the markets. Another key thing uh, this week has been the rise in US Treasury yields. They hit a 16-year high Mm -hmm. um, earlier this week, 4.35%. The two-year yield is now above uh, 5%. The the thing that maybe markets have slightly missed, which I I think is also significant, the real yield, um, which is the yield on um, inflation-protected securities, has pushed above 2% now. That seems to me to be very, very significant. And and this rise in yields um, is going to have a big impact on the US dollar, um, which we're seeing rise to uh, sort of new highs and and on the markets overall. But I'm interested to know what what you think the impact is of these climbing yields is going to be. Well, uh, number one, of course, it will be on the housing market. Uh, I think last week the uh, uh, the 30-year mortgage was already at a 21-year high. Now it's in a 22-year high now. Mm. So I think high since uh, the year 2000. Yeah, I think uh, uh, pe- people will not be many people will not be able to buy house be- simply because they cannot make the mortgage payment. Mm. I think it's going to have a negative impact on the. Uh, uh, housing market in the U.S. and of course, uh, with U.S. dollar rising, uh, uh, 
uh, the the yuan falling <laughs> is not going to be good for the uh, Chinese and Hong Kong stock markets. It's going to fall today. Yeah, I don't think yields are going to go much higher, but they'll. My view is they'll stay where they are um, for the foreseeable future. I think the U.S. economy is finally reaching that tipping point where, as Francis says, coupled with sort of housing, um, lack of affordability, and then the knock-on effect that'll have on consumer um, spending, everything that kind of goes in when people move houses and um, all that sort of ancillary expenditure. So it's... Yeah, I mean, and obviously a lot of focus will be on the meeting today in Jackson Hole mm. mm -hmm. and getting guidance as to what the rest of the year is going to look like. But I think we're probably in for a slightly volatile period where everyone reads far too much into individual data points and sound bites from um, various <laughs> economic pundits. Mm. Francis, on the local markets, um, yeah. the Hang Seng Index... Well, it's they're, they're, they're going to fall today because uh, yesterday we had a good run, but uh, good things don't last long. <laughs> yeah, we hit a nine-month low on Monday. For, yeah, for luckily the they, we we banged at uh, how many? Well, more than one thousand points from then. But then I think today we're going to see some profit taking. No doubt about that. In the longer term, can you be optimistic about uh, local shares? Well, I, I think I think the the good thing is that the shares are already low enough. You cannot go go down any further. <laughs> Famous last words. <laughs> so so I think uh, it it will rise to twenty thousand, but I don't see the market going to thirty thousand. <laughs> What's it going to take, Simon, to persuade these foreign investors that have been selling to to come back? That's going to be part. I know they're not a big part of the mainland markets, but nevertheless, it's been very noticeable, hasn't it? Their their absence from um, from Chinese stocks? I think it's what we've had is an absence of stability. Um, we don't need we don't need a whole bunch of good news, but we just need the sort of the bad news to stop coming. We need things to calm down, um, interest rates to kind of stay level, the rhetoric between the US and China to come down a notch. And I think all these meetings that are taking place will help that. And I mean, if the U.S. economy certainly starts to slow down. China's economy obviously very much has done so. Um, then there's going to be less um, need for the two of them to sort of fight it out in the playground and they'll sort of sit there and take a breather. And I think mm -hmm. that is when um, level heads will prevail and investment will start coming back. Okay, well, great. Thank you both very much. Have a great weekend. Yep. Talk to you again soon. That was Simon Kavanagh, who is partner at BDA Partners. Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities. I'm joined now by Toby Lawson, the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. Morning, Toby. Good morning, Peter. Well, the news overnight, a big expansion in the BRICS nations. They've invited Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates to join their emerging market group. You couldn't get a more disparate group of countries there, really, could you, in terms of uh, the, the membership? But how significant is this to, uh, to BRICS and does it increase their, their sort of power, if you like, in the world? Well, I think it's it most interesting in so much as BRICS has been around for quite a while, um, but probably it's never really been seen as other than sort of a, a loose coalition of those countries without sort of any structure or any proposed, you know, um, in 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 comparison to shows so the G7 or the G20. Um, so this is quite significant in so much as I think it brings BRICS to the fore as a potential competing organisation to the G7, G20. Um, and interestingly, there's, you know, there's there's players on both sides of that, to, to be fair, and members of both. And we can talk about India a little bit on this. But I think what, what, what is significant about it is the expansion from 5 to 11 and, as you mentioned, the type of countries that are involved in it, but also the idea does this, um, you know, foretell a, a, a threat to, dollar, you know, US dollar hegemony you know, uh, because some of the BRICS uh, conversations around de-dollarisation, around creating a block currency for the BRICS. So these all, are, you know, come to the fore. And with more countries involved, there's more chance of that potentially happening. Mm. Does it give them more 
economic clout. I mean, it represents, according to uh, the Brazilian president, 37% of the world's GDP now, if you include these new members. But of course, the only problem is, if you calculate it on a per capita basis, per capita income is much, much lower than what there is in the West and in Japan and and Australia. So um, it's still a grouping mainly of poor countries, isn't it? Yeah, I think if you, yeah, you said 37% of GDP, about almost half the population of the world, if you add them all together. So to you, yeah, it's the it's the poorer nations um, uh, overall that are, are forming part of BRICS. But it is significant in so much as it could create a bit of a, an us-v-them, a bit more structure around uh, conflict, particularly when you've got Russia and China in the mix that, you know, are effectively... Uh, running an opposing um, strategy to the to the to the West to a large extent, and so that yeah brings brings all of that conversation. It reminded me of a little bit, and and not to not to draw too many inferences and not to be too critical, but I don't know if you remember the old com- comedy uh, series Get Smart, mm-hmm. um, which uh, you know, and I always think of, yeah, this is going to be <laughs> control versus chaos, uh, and are we seeing the beginnings of this sort of structure going forward and? And that's not to put a value judgment on both sides, but it just <laughs> it made me think a little bit about this idea that um, you know we're, we're we're seeing potentially sort of a two competing uh, organisations of world domination, um, control and chaos. But um, uh, let's see; it's certainly an interesting uh, development, that's for sure. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, between what I think maybe a differing requirements for BRICS from India and um, and China. I mean, China has been very keen on this expansion. India was less so, but but they've agreed to it. But China very much sees itself, or I should imagine, wants to see itself as the leader of um, of the BRICS, whereas India certainly doesn't want that at all. No, I think India is in a really um, interesting position because you know it's been very much. Uh, working closer with the West um, has identified itself. It's it's wanted to maintain a level of neutrality. And I think um, one of the great lines, I think, from the Foreign Minister Shashanka was that India wants to exploit opportunities created by global contradiction. Um, now, that's okay you know, when you're in that position to be able to be a neutral. But I think it'll be get more and more difficult for India to play both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that level of neutrality makes sense to India it wants to take opportunities for the benefit of India. Uh, it sees a role um, to have partnerships with both sides of the equation when it comes to geopolitics. Um, it gets more complicated, I think, the more that gets embedded and the more these sort of a polar views of the world around globalisation start to you know, to get further, further apart. India will be stretched in the middle to try to balance the two. So it plays a key role. And as you mentioned, it, it's it's about neutrality for India. It doesn't want to take sides. It doesn't want to position itself either way. Whereas China and uh, and Russia obviously are clearly positioning to try to grow this group as an alternative to the G7 and to mm. the to the West. Mm. The other thing that's interesting about it is the world's four biggest oil-producing nations are now represented here. Saudi Arabia, Russia, Iran, United Arab Emirates. It adds a new dimension suddenly, doesn't it, to this BRICS uh, membership and maybe raises the question of are they going to try and de-dollarize and, and do maybe more oil transactions in other currencies apart from the dollar? So the de-dollarization discussion is interesting from from not just from 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 the perspective of, of pure economics, but also from avoiding sanction. If you have a different currency, and 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 sanctions for a lot of these countries are imposed by in US dollar terms, um, is it a way of getting around that? Um, there's also the payment system. I think one of the big things that that the BRICS countries and 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 countries that are joining BRICS are are looking to to try to find an alternative to the SWIFT payment scheme, which effectively locks in US dollar control around the world. So the actual payment mechanism would be challenged at some point. So there's a lot of complexity around this idea of de-dollarization. I think, yeah, you can look at it from a principle perspective, but the reality of it is very difficult to achieve. Mm. And, and of course, you know, they've tried uh, paying for oil between Russia and India, but they, they, they can't agree at the moment on the currency to pay it in because um, uh, Russia yeah. doesn't want rupees and India doesn't want rubles. Correct. So the reality is, so if you, you know, creating a common currency uh, is fraught with complexity. So the, you know, the chances of that happening in the short term are unlikely. Um, is it an outcome that BRICS would like to achieve over time or what the new BRICS would be called? 
um, particularly with, as you mentioned, these oil-producing nations being a, uh, now part of it, uh, remains to be seen. But I think it's a much more complex uh, outcome to be able to try to achieve a competitor to the US dollar. Okay, well, let's switch our attention to the markets. Investors have been waiting for two big things this week. One was the NVIDIA results, which came out yesterday. The other is Jerome Powell's speech at Jackson Hole, which will come later today. First of all, on those NVIDIA results, I mean, um, huge, huge blowout uh, earnings reports, weren't they? Which I suppose just highlights now how big a theme and, and how transformative AI is becoming. Yeah, amazing. Was it uh, 100% up from the year ago? Um, uh, revenues of 13.5 billion. Uh, you know, the uh, earnings per share were up. Everything was up in relation to Nvidia. And I'm actually surprised the market wasn't priced for it, or at least didn't. You know, the consensus forecast went uh, closer to the to the outcome because you know it's been in the press, right? And it's in the mm-hmm. share price move and the expectation around AI. Um, but they just even out outdid those. Uh, expectations of the of, of the consensus uh, forecast, so it was an extraordinary result. Um, interestingly, they didn't necessarily drive a lot of uh, momentum beyond the 24 hours because obviously uh, other matters are taking uh, priority. But it really does show this area of AI and the development uh, as the next sort of big phase in the growth sector. Uh, for, for tech stocks. It seems NVIDIA, though, amongst the chip makers is dominating it, isn't it? Because it doesn't seem to be benefiting other chip makers like um, Intel and, and AMD. It seems to be really NVIDIA has got this big, big uh, lead uh, against all its competitors. Yeah, and, and maybe that reflects first a market type or control of market. You, know, you think of some of these other um, uh, tech innovations, um, you know, that tends to be a, a big winner who's first to market or intends to be able to, you know, uh, capture the market space uh, as it as it starts to unfold. And, and everyone just finds, because maybe they don't know enough about the sector, that people just plough into the one that's got the most attention. Um, and that's possibly part of the uh, of the reason. And that happens often happens in new tech um, because it's a, you know, a single leader comes out and takes the space and it's very difficult for the competitors to, to, to pick up particularly mm. in an area where people have not a lot of knowledge. And and how transformative is AI going to be? I've been thinking about what it could be compared to in, in terms of how it's going to change productivity at companies, transform the business. Are we looking at something similar to when the internet first uh, started to become used back in the 1990s in terms of how important and how transformative it was? Yeah, I think two ways of looking at it and – you know, we talk about a little bit in our business here. So, you know, with technology really has got to be an enabler for productivity. It's not the solution in of itself. And I don't see AI as a replacement. Um, I see it as, a, as an enabler for productivity. And I think it'll have a significant impact on that. And, you know, those who run businesses or listeners in will, you know, will, will know that there are certain things. That, but I think the mistake people are making, or at least some of the, of the commentary around it, is that AI replaces I don't think it does. I think it enhances and it creates productivity. Um, but ultimately, it's there to um, to enable productivity and enable solutions as opposed to replace humans and replace certain interactions. So to that extent, I think it will have a significant impact, huge. But I don't think it goes so far as to say it replaces the, the need to have people doing jobs. Mm. But presumably, this theme is going to, this AI theme is going to continue for a while yet. It's it's not a it's not a fad anymore. Albeit there's going to no. have to be other stocks, not just Nvidia, that's going to benefit from it. No, I think the whole sector. Yeah, I think it, yeah. And the difference is, you know, the internet was a you know ultimately um, monetizing the internet was was again the technology enabled uh, companies to be able to monetize the value of it. And I think AI will do something similar. Um, so yeah, it'll be it'll be in the news, that's for sure. And um, but I think the idea that you know that machines are going to replace everything and mm. we're not going to have any any job, I think is uh, yeah is well short of the mark. Now, the other thing investors have been waiting for, Jerome Powell's speech uh, coming later today, 10, 10 o'clock Eastern time uh, in the US at the Jackson Hole Symposium. Of course, everyone waiting to see what he says, if anything at all, about interest rates. How high are they going to go? But I think the consensus certainly seems to be developing that whatever happens, even if we're at a peak or close to a peak, they are going to stay high for quite a while. Yeah, I think, it's a, the, and I think the bond markets reflect, you know, the bond markets shift is reflecting the higher risk premium 
that needs to be considered um, for a longer period of higher inflation. Now, inflation will continue to soften relative to where it is, but um, stickier for longer and interest rates overall are going to stay higher for longer. And I think what we saw in the bond market over the last month is a re- repricing of risk mm. um, as reflected in yields, particularly at the long end, because the 10-year is the sort of benchmark for pricing uh, risk. So I think that's part of what we've seen in the bond market. Um, I think Powell, last time they had the Jackson Hole Symposium, was was quite abrupt um, when he mentioned that they're going to fight inflation and despite the impact of risk on recession, it was quite a, at the time quite a uh, uh, an aggressive statement. Uh, so what does he come out with this time? I think the reflection of one of the Fed governors overnight was that you know economic activity is is holding up such that it may mean that there's another hike um, in the year. Uh, so things may not be over when it regards to interest rate hikes. But generally speaking, I think uh, Powell's probably going to run the run the message that yeah, the fight's not over uh, and hence uh, eternal vigilance is required and so not definitely not creating any um, expectation that um, rates are coming off in any time soon. What what is also interesting, I mean, a lot of people have been focusing on the 10-year bond, which hit a a 16-year high. But the other thing that I think was significant was inflation-protected securities, TIPS, the real yield on them now has pushed above 2%. That's quite significant as well, isn't it, when you've got real Mm. yields at 2%. This is more like how rates used to be on quite a regular basis before sort of the global financial crisis. Yeah, I think it's just a. In fact, that's right. I think we're heading back to what is, um, for those who are old enough, and we are probably two of those candidates. Pete, have seen. I'm it afraid we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's the. It's back to to the new normal. In in a sense, it's uh, it's back to what we expect in relation to risk premia associated with uh, debt, and so yeah, it's not surprising. And I think, but I guess what was surprising how long it took. For the bond market to to reprice, and I felt that in a way, part of the shift was the the expectation now is okay. This is not going to be um, a move uh, up in inflation and back down to two percent in a hurry. Mm. Um, but the bond market hadn't priced that risk uh, into its curve, and I think it shifted in the last month to say, okay, this thing's, this isn't going to change um, too quickly, even if interest rates aren't going to go much higher. And I suppose the other consequence of that is the US dollar. Once you start seeing real rates above 2%, that's normally associated with quite a strong rise in the US dollar, which we've been seeing, haven't we, for the last sort of a couple of weeks now. Yeah, and dollar dollar looks fairly structurally, fairly strong as well. So, yeah, but we'll see. You know, this, this symposium is always an interesting one. It tends, tends to, to set a bit of a benchmark for the markets post-summer both Northern Summer to come out of and sort of set their targets. So we'll be watching this one really closely. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Toby. Always good to speak to you. That's Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you very much for listening this morning and this week. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll have more business and finance updates for you on Monday. Joining me then are Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and John Schofield, Managing Director of Tempest Investment, providing a view from mainland China, will be Brock Silvers, CIO at Kyan Capital. Have a great weekend. Money Talk. 